Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, it's our April Book Club episode. We've been reading The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy, an autobiography in which the writer describes the process of rebuilding her life after a divorce. We'll be discussing our thoughts about the book and hearing an interview with Deborah herself. Hello. Hello. Welcome to a very exciting book club episode of Seriously, in which we're discussing the work of one of our favourite authors, Deborah Levy. And today we're talking about her recent memoir, The Cost of Living. And Caroline, you've interviewed Deborah Levy, which is very exciting. Yes. So I got her on the phone for about 15 minutes, which was a huge privilege, I felt, uh, given that, yeah, I've been reading her work for years and I think I have actually read her writing about this, that, you know, for years and years, she was writing these incredible plays and these novels Mm. and nobody was really reading them. Like, obviously, people were, like, especially a select few who've long been champions of her work. But it wasn't until one of her novels got long listed for the Booker Prize in about 2010-11 that suddenly she became this, like, major literary voice in Britain. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's that's how I discovered her. So I sort of went back and read other things after I read that and have been following her since. Yeah, she is this incredible literary brain and she has so many interesting thoughts about form as well as content. I think she's really up there with like the best of the best. Totally. And she's written a lot about writing, I feel like, as mm. well, both in her in her fiction and in her other work. So The Cost of Living is by no means a sequel, but it follows Things I Don't Want to Know, uh, which is a book she wrote a few years ago that kind of responds to George Orwell's essay, Why I Write. And in that, she kind of talks about how the experience of writing as a woman might be different to the experience of writing as a man. And in that, she says... Perhaps when Orwell described sheer egoism as a necessary quality for a writer, he was not thinking about the sheer egoism of a female writer. Even the most arrogant female writer has to work over time to build an ego that's robust enough to get her through January, never mind all the way to December. Which is obviously funny, but also says something, I think, about some of the challenges that that some women writers, I'm sure, experience and I think that's something that really came through in this work the cost of living is how she's had to basically it's a banal fact but totally reorganize her entire life around writing in order to be a Mm. successful writer obviously that's just a given 
when you're going through a divorce and you've got two children and you're moving home and you're trying to make that divorce as smooth as possible for your kids and so on that's a real challenge um especially if you've like lost your office which is uh, a very practical um challenge to face but it also kind of brings to the fore more intellectual challenges as well and that's something that i really felt reading this book is how all the practical problems and obstacles that she has to overcome in order to write are also kind of intellectual ones and also ones of patriarchy they're all mixed in together Mm. So she talks a bit about this in the interview, but she describes the cost of living and things I don't want to know as living autobiographies. Mm. And her longtime obsession is this idea of being able to write about, write memoir in the present tense, essentially, rather than it being something you do at the end of a life and you're looking back and therefore it's all in the past and you're Mm -hmm. looking at it with hindsight. She wants to write about what's happening to her and what she's feeling in the moment and for it to feel like that for the reader as well. Mm-hmm. And this is why she's very interested and preoccupied by the idea of when you write memoir, you're never really writing the whole of yourself. You're never writing your absolute personality or being onto the page. It's always like a character that you construct in order to tell that particular instance. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting in The Cost of Living how she slightly shifts and changes from the different anecdotes that she's relating. And she is telling you things that have already happened, but she's trying to make you feel like you're watching them as they happen. Mm-hmm. And it means that this is quite a material book in lots of ways. The flat. Um, so she moves out of her family home into a flat and that becomes like a big character in the novel and she's you know should I paint it in colorful paint or how do I make it a livable space how you know how do I get my shopping all the way up the hill Mm. that it's on top of these questions then like come into the foreground in a way that I actually really loved because she's such a a beautiful writer when she's describing things like bees or oranges rolling down the hill or whatever it is that level of immediacy and that level of intimacy that you get from the detail of the mundane is just really beautiful in this. Mm, yeah, there's a quote I wrote down from it actually quite early on. She says, all writing is about looking and listening and paying attention to the world. Mm, yeah, which is definitely what she's doing here. Mm, yes, and actually the, at the start of Things I Don't Want to Know, she has a, a bit where she she's looking back into a notebook from many years before where she'd just taken some notes about like what happened on a flight she was taking to Poland and what it was like. And then she reflects later that actually, hang on, I used all of this in a novel 20 years later. So those details were still present to her, even if they were in the past and they Mm -hmm. sort of found its way out into her writing eventually. Mm. It's a short book. It's not massively long. It's about 150 pages, something like that. And it's quite spacious and easy to read, but you can also spend a very long time reading it because Mm. there's a lot to unpack inside it. In that sense, it reminds me a lot of Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts Mm -hmm. in that it would be possible to like read that in one sitting but it's also possible to read it for several years I would say. Mm. One thing that I really enjoyed is having read some of her fiction specifically Hot Milk which this book is written during the writing of Mm. Hot Milk so then you get all these like little allusions to details that then appear in that book so you know she might be having a thought about jellyfish and that then becomes one of the major themes in that or motifs and images rather of that novel that was really fascinating to me to see how those things are being held in her mind 
at the same time as she's kind of like thinking about her new electric bike yeah um, she loves her electric bike <laughs> yeah and the image i actually love the image of her like whizzing up and down that you know the hills in Hampstead on this <laughs> electric bike but it's interesting how to think about how she must have to hold so many different things in her mind at once and how there's you know another story behind any the writing of any novel mm. <laughs> essentially yes and this idea that even when you are I think as celebrated and well-respected writer as she is you don't just get to do the sort of uh idealized thing where you like sit in the shed in the garden and it's always beautiful summer and you look out mm. the window and then you just write your novel from beginning to end mm. that's not how it works at all she and I really appreciate how she describes all of the times when she's like freezing cold or like fumbling for the keys in the dark and how she's having to just say yes to like every bit of work mm-hmm. she's being offered, like reviewing and all that kind of stuff just to sort of keep her, the home comfortable for her daughters mm-hmm. and like keep everything going. Because, yeah, the divorce is the major event of this book in that it sets off all the other events, all the other changes, but also she every so often you get this little passage that's about, you know, why did we ever think that this was going to be a lasting love when we didn't even really want to, you know, be in the same room with each other Mm. and all of this kind of stuff. There are just these little instances where she talks about the marriage of like intimacy and domesticity and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Totally. Even the title, The Cost of Living, it holds all those ideas in it at once. Like, yes, there's a financial cost to getting a divorce and rearranging your life in that way and there's an emotional cost and the sense of the word living is interesting to me because Mm. there is a sense where her life would have been easier and more manageable and more financially easy to navigate if she'd stayed in her marriage but there's another sense where if she had stayed in her marriage would she really have been living Mm. and there's a lot in this book about the price of freedom and how much it costs as a woman to be like do you know what I'm doing my own thing I have my own independent career and emotional inner life and things that I need and I have to organize my life around those things and even though she's she actually kind of stops shy I think of spelling those concerns out for you in a way that I really like occasionally she'll be like oh and then I started thinking about how difficult Mm. it was for me to organize my life in this way but most of the time she's literally as you say talking about things on a much more quotidian level but that allows the questions to come into the narrative without being reductive ever it's never like it's hard for a woman to write you know Mm. it's never talked about in ways that diminish experience it's always talked about in ways that are pulled out of experience and that's something that I really appreciate about the writing because it means that you never reduce concepts like writing to you know idealized stereotypes or uh, challenges that have no redeeming factors or whatever it's just a, it's just a really good way of exploring the reality of those questions yeah and one of the ways she does it as well is by being what she called when we spoke in dialogue with Simone de Beauvoir mm-hmm. and the second sex and in one at one point she describes de Beauvoir you know having this marriage with Sartre and how it was also tempestuous and also bound up with the way they worked and thought and then she has this lover in Chicago who just absolutely loves her for who she is and so Levy kind of writes about you know she she has this vacation almost like in his home where 
everything is because he's chosen it and he's making it like that for her Mm. and he wants her to move there so they can live like that forever and she just can't do it Mm. because part of the tumult and the difficulty is part of how she works and thinks and she can't Mm -hmm. give that up so yeah it's all very intertwined with some quite high level critical stuff I think there's a wide pool of references and she makes so many references and one thing I really like about the way that she's referential in her work is that she doesn't again spell it out so she'll Mm. be like a Joni Mitchell song was playing about loving and hating and she won't say oh I was listening to Joni Mitchell's all I want she'll just say Joni Mitchell was singing about Mm. loving and hating and that for me if you know the song is actually a way more exciting way to read a reference because you pull out a the lyrics that she's talking about without boring you by like quoting the exact lyrics um you think more interestingly about the song itself because you're not just like oh yeah i know that song Mm, you're like oh that's an element of that song yeah of course there's like the double-edged sword in that song when whenever she references anything in that way it's really subtle and really nuanced and it allows the the you know element of popular culture that she's bringing into the narrative to kind of have its own life and I really like that and I also think it's really funny (laughs) she writes often with like a slightly arched eyebrow about things like even Simone de Beauvoir she'll be like well I guess I never ended up quite in the same situation as Simone Mm. de Beauvoir but the thing we did share is this and she says it in a way that you're quite like oh yeah that's a that's a funny little joke to make and I feel like a lot of the time she kind of writes with this detached, cool humor about the things that are happening to her. She's always able at a remove to kind of make a quite gentle mockery sometimes of the things yes. that are happening to her. And I really like that because obviously these are big and serious questions, but she's never so detached a figure that she can't laugh at the fact that she's had like a leaf in her hair while she was at a major meeting yes (laughs) um and in that sense of the personality of her coming through the page I really I really appreciate those moments of levity and those those moments of kind of um wry humor in the book they're really nice yeah they absolutely make it I think in different hands this kind of work could be quite like po-faced and quite quote heavyweight in and I mean that in a pejorative sense this is absolutely heavyweight in an intellectual sense but Mm. it's the writing is not heavy and it's not stuffy or anything like that you know as you say it is funny and it is light and it is sometimes silly like I really like the description of the party that she goes to yeah um, where she sort of says in as you say with that sort of arched eyebrow like we actually kicked off our shoes and danced Mm. just as the song was telling us to do that Mm. you know um, yeah that's another great reference when she references Bowie without really saying we were listening to Bowie's let's dance but you mm. know when you kick off your red shoes and dance the blues like what what song she's talking about should I really yeah and one of my favorite lines in it that's just stuck in my head I don't know if I said this last week but is when she says Medusa was a woman who was very powerful and very upset. (laughs) Yes. Which just makes me laugh so much because it's so funny, but it's also obviously really true. And it says something quite truthful about like female rage and, and, you know, the way that we have been encouraged to perceive female rage. You know, it's just really funny. And there are so many lovely little moments in this book. So it's really, really worth reading for, for highlights like those. Yeah, so now we're going to hear from Deborah herself. And at the end of our interview, she also read a passage from the book. So make sure you stay tuned for all of that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. 
So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So now I'm joined by Deborah Levy the author of The Cost of Living, as well as many other books. And she's joining us to discuss this new instalment in what has been called her living autobiography. Deborah, would you say that's an accurate description of what you've written? Yeah, in a way it is, because my understanding of most autobiographies is that they're written at the end of one's life in mm. retrospect. And I wanted to write in the present tense, about life while it is being lived. So I couldn't think of a better uh, subtitle than that. The Cost of Living, a Living Autobiography seems, seems near enough. And so you said you wanted to write in the present tense. So the experiences that you recount in this book, they're all things that are still happening to you. Well, they're written at the time when they were happening and a little bit afterwards. But The Cost of Living is the sequel to Things I Don't Want to Know. Mm. And um, that was written in my 40s. And it was it started off as a, as a kind of extended essay uh, in response to Orwell's 1946 essay, um, Why I Write. And Orwell had found four brilliant headings to um, describe his what drove him to hammer the keyboards. And so they were political purpose, historical impulse, sheer egoism, aesthetic enthusiasm. And I decided to give those headings a spin from a female writer's point of view. And I discovered, uh, it's not a new discovery at all, Montaigne did it way, way before I did, as as have many other writers, but that writing an essay in the present tense was was really interesting. It was it was political, and that one could go really very deeply into personal experience um, and come out the other side saying some things about the world that were not didactic, because I write. Prescript, I, I don't write prescriptive books, I write reflective books. 
And so the cost of living is, is a partial autobiography. They're about big things that happen in um, in the time frame of about three years uh, of the narrator's life. So you mentioned that you write about the events as they're happening. What sort of form does that take for you? Do you keep a journal or do you take notes and then write into narrative later? Well, they're written at different times while they're happening and and um, and after they've happened, because that's the way a writer makes sense of them. But my point is, Caroline, that is, is, is that they're written in the present tense. They're not written retrospectively years later yeah. with the wisdom of hindsight. That sort of thing. Um, and so the cost of living isn't chronological. It, uh, most most autobiographical most autobiographies, I think, you know, start in childhood and then move through a life. But in in things that I want to know and the cost of living, um, childhood comes to chase the adult in the living present tense. And I look at the ways that the past is always in conversation with the present, in, you know, in, in all our lives. So... Um, uh, the cost of living starts with the with the marriage hitting the rocks, uh, with dismantling a home, and then the task of creating uh, another sort of home. Um, and it goes into quite a lot of detail, domestic detail, about what that about that. And I absolutely loved what you wrote at the beginning this metaphor of the boat and feeling like if you had to swim back to the boat, you would surely drown, which is obviously the opposite way round to how people normally think about it. And this idea of embracing chaos rather than running away from it. Is that something you came to in the moment, that feeling? Well, I think change is, a, is, is good, uh, can be good. And, um, and although you know, as, as I say in the book, we we all fear chaos, and we 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 want to be able to have a, some idea of of the future, and we and we work very hard to make stable, predictable lives. And so, I did come to see um, the the um, changes of that time as 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 um as good changes, as creative changes. And so in a way it it's a joyous book. It's not a book about suffering and endurance and sacrifice, not at all. It's a book about making a new composition for life and in life and what that's like. Um the hard days and, and, and the better days. There's another part quite near the beginning where you talk about seeing a man crying at a funeral and crying like a woman and then sort of posing the question have I ever seen a woman crying like a man and sort of gender difference in terms of emotional resonance seems to run through the book quite a lot is that something that you've been thinking about for a while oh yeah I mean gender as a performance is something that I um, look at in all my books what's masculinity what's femininity um uh, all of that, 
But uh, in this book, I suppose that there is a there's a, a, a thread that goes through which borrows from the language of film, which is about major and minor characters. Because when you write a film script, you always ask to to decide whose film it is, who are the minor characters, who are the major characters. And so if we apply that to our own lives, it's quite interesting to, to think about. Um, and as, as Simone de Beauvoir had pointed out in The Second Sex, and The Cost of Living is in conversation with that book, and it's also in conversation with Audre Lorde's um, brilliant essays such as um, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House and her poetry, all of which have been uh, recently collected into a new anthology published by Silver Press called Our Silence Will Not Protect Us. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a book that leans and is in conversation with other thinkers. Um, so my point in The Cost of Living is that um, women are not minor characters, they're major characters. And there's a search for a major unwritten female character uh, in this book. Um, because if, if, if we think about sort of vintage ideas of femininity, um, they're always to do with cheerful suffering and endurance and sacrifice. And um, these seem to be talents that um, I think we could lose. And um, and all of that, and then there's also uh, there's also a, a discussion about um, about shifting masculinities and femininities, and um, it, you know my book doesn't fix. Is I'm not really a, interested in fixing anything. It's a fluid book. It's 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 a conversation with readers about some of these matters. That's actually the next thing I wanted to ask you about this idea of a conversation with readers, because it's been a long time since I've read a book that has made me feel so much like someone was talking to me, but at the same time, not telling me what to do or how to be just you're good relating, you know, and I wondered when you're writing, how do you imagine that conversation or does it come later once the text is complete? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think all writers have to find a tone, a voice to speak to readers, to speak with. And, um, and non-fiction is exactly the same because you, you have to kind of invent a character that's close to, one, that's close to oneself um, through which to, to speak. And so I guess the the tone in um, things I don't want to know and the cost of living is intimate, but it's also quite formal, isn't it? You know, it's um, but it's a, but it is an intimate conversation um, about life and all the things that, um, or rather, some of the things that um, we might feel too ashamed to voice or to. Um, I don't know, just speak out loud. Um, 
about loneliness and and, and loss and um, feeling strong one day and lots and, and, and vulnerable another day. So the idea that um, you know it's an empowering book or it's a um, divorce story, all of the, all of that is, is not really correct. It's a book about all the dimensions of. Um, in this case, a female life, in which uh, in which we can feel many things at the same time. Because I suppose the previous instalment began as, as you said, a sort of female writer's idea of the "Why I Write" essay. So that idea of expressing that woman's version or a woman's version—that's been part of the project from the beginning. It did become that, didn't it, in Things I Don't Want to Know? Because if you give those four uh, brilliant uh, headings from Orwell, the spin, from a female writer's point of view, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a different story mm. because we inhabit, we inhabit the world differently. Um, and, um, you know, just to go back to um, De Beauvoir, her comments that there I mean, these are all so obvious. We really shouldn't even be having this conversation. But, you know, that there's one subjectivity and that subjectivity is male. It's still quite pervasive. And so it seems uh, radical to write about female experience in, in one's 40s and in one's 50s in particular when um, there is so much... Um, there's some pressure on women to shut up um, because that's what the patriarchy um, is there to do. It's to, to sort of shut up women, uh, to silence them. And so I think it is radical to write about making a new composition for life um, in the way that it unfolds. In um, in the cost of living, and for and as Rebecca Solnit points out in in the Mother of All Questions, for 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 all women not to be pinned to one single story about what the good life might be. Yes, I think above all, if I took anything from your book, it's this idea that life is many things, often sometimes at the same time, and exactly. trying to pin it to one particular thing is a futile and limiting thing to do. It's a re- reductive thing to do. It doesn't describe our lives um, as, as fully as, as we live them. Um, and I guess also the cost of living is, it has, they're the big things in life, aren't they? they they're sort of separation and, and death. And, um, and I write quite a lot about um, my mother's death, but I also write um, about the mother as a delusion, the societal system creates and, and, and loves the delusion actually more than the woman. Mm. I wonder, Caroline, if I should read a bit from the book for your podcast. What do you think? That would be lovely if you've got a bit that you think would work. There is a photograph I have kept of my mother in her late 20s. She is sitting on a rock at a picnic with friends. Her hair is wet because she's just had a swim. 
There is a kind of introspection in her expression that I now relate to the very best of her. I can see that she is close to herself in this random moment. I'm not sure that I thought introspection was the best of her when I was a child and teenager. What do we need dreamy mothers for? We do not want mothers who gaze beyond us, longing to be elsewhere. We need her to be of this world, lively, capable, entirely present to our needs. Did I mock the dreamer in my mother and then insult her for having no dreams? As the vintage story goes, it is the father who is the hero and the dreamer. He detaches himself from the pitiful needs of his women and children and strides out into the world to do his thing. When he, return, when he returns to the home that our mothers have made for us, he is either welcomed back into the fold or becomes a stranger who will eventually need us more than we need him. He tells us some of what he has seen in his world. We give him an edited version of the living we do every day. Our mothers live with us in this living, and we blame her for everything because she is nearby. At the same time, we try not to collude with myths about her character and purpose in life. All the same, we need her to feel anxiety on our behalf. After all, our everyday living is full of anxiety. If we do not disclose our feelings to her, we mysteriously expect her to understand them anyway. And if she moves beyond us, comes close to being a self that is not at our service, she has transgressed from the mythic, primal task of being our protector and nurturer. Yet, if she comes too close, she suffocates us, infecting our fragile courage with her contagious anxiety. If our mother does the things she needs to do in the world, we feel she has abandoned us. It is a miracle she survives our mixed messages written in society's most poisoned ink. That was wonderful. Thank you. I felt very privileged to hear have that read to me down the phone. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 